Not my shirt. No, no, no popping your no pee. Uh, <laughs> no problematic no fricatives. That's my job. I don't get it. I don't care. No, 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 no. Welcome to I Don't Get It, a podcast about performance in Edmonton. I'm Paul. And I'm Fonda. And uh, and we have a special guest with us, don't we, Fonda? Yes, we do. We have the lovely Laura Raboud with us. She is a performer um, and musician in town. And welcome, Laura. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah. So Laura's going to help us review one of the shows that we saw this week. Laura and I saw. Um, it was uh, the 10th anniversary of the Prairie Dance Circuit. And then uh, we are going to talk about uh, the first offering of Alberta Ballet's new season, which was not the actual Alberta Ballet company, but a guest company doing the tango. Yes, tango fire. And we're also going to talk, I saw the symphony last night uh, for the first time in um, probably my whole life. So that was great. And I wanted to chat about that a little bit too. Great. Cool. And we will. But let's start with um, Prairie Dance Circuit. Laura, you were in the Prairie Dance Circuit last year. Yes, I was. I was in a piece that Amber Baratsik uh, choreographed. Um, yeah. And it was uh, really great. And I learned a ton. Yeah. And so um, are you a dancer by trade or? Uh, I grew up with dance lessons, but I'm an actor. Uh, and so I think, and a singer, and I was hired uh, to actually teach dancers to sing. A lot of Amber's work that we've been doing together is about uh, incorporating sound into uh, movement at wow. the same time. Yeah. Cool. So what was being part of the Prairie Dance Circuit like? I mean, I know you tour to different cities in Western Canada and... It was it was really an amazing experience. Um, being around dancers was incredible. They're so like they were so calm and like they take such good care of themselves. <laughs> like compared to actors, yes, compared to actors. Like a warm up for a dancer is like coming gracefully into a room and like lying down on the floor and like you know and like relaxing in a sunbeam and like actors are like, blah, like smoking cigarettes <laughs> and coffee. stuff yeah, exactly. throwing their coffee to the side and being like let's get this show on the road yeah exactly script snaps open <laughs> all right <laughs> totally also actors are in, are so like into narrative like they cannot handle um just being told to move for the sake of moving they're like but why What's Why? What am I doing right. here? Like, mm -hmm. so that was a lot, like a big struggle to uh, to to think of performance in a completely different way. Yeah. So, um, with the experience for you being uh, being you know mo an actor by trade uh, in your usual performance life, um, what did you what did you learn about dance? How do you watch it? Do you watch it differently now than you did before? I do watch it differently. I try not to. Um, I try to let the narrative kind of. Go and I, I look more for um, the aesthetics and the lines and the visual images that they're trying to create with their bodies. Um, Lynn Snelling said, like, I was saying, oh, I'm on a precipice and I feel like I'm going to fall over. She's like, or you're standing there rocking back and forth, like one of the two, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Like, but no one else pragmatic. knows what those two things are. It's just whatever yeah. it comes to their mind when they're watching you in that case, right? Exactly. Okay. So, yeah. So I have a kind of an insight more into some of the process that is happening nowadays in the contemporary world. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, as an actor, um, or I guess any Edmontonian performer, really, how often do you really get the chance to go to four different major cities and tour work like that? 
I've never had that opportunity. It was uh, incredible. It was, and it was really eye-opening. And in um, each place, like Regina has its own amazing artists in the middle of this small town, like making incredible work. Joey Trombley is out there as well, as well as uh, Robin Portra. Yeah. Poitras? Poitras? I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so it's like this small town, but there's these really brave artists there, and they have this really great knit community. And then in Winnipeg, there's a whole other thing going on with the contemporary dance. and uh, have the big school out in Winnipeg, yeah. Yeah, they're really really serious and amazing artists. And then in Calgary, they have Fluid, um, which is an incredible, was incredible. I've never seen dancing like that in a cabaret setting it yeah, was yeah. it was amazing yeah, I was the fluid festival is coming up again this year in calgary um later in october um but let's let's talk i mean it's going to sound like a little bit of a plug but in that way this prairie dance circuit is something pretty special because it's quite unique i think i don't know that there's a lot of other like say a group of four dance companies in the country that collaborate annually like that I don't know of any others. I, uh, yeah, it was incredible. Cool. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about this year's Prairie Dance Circuit. So there were four pieces um, to open Brian Webb Dance Company's Forever 39 season. Maybe it's actually their 40th. We don't know. Well, we'll see. But anyway, um, so it started off with two pieces by Nicole Mion. One was a duet called Still Moving Land Acknowledgement, uh, which was created and performed by Nicole Mion and Troy Emery Twig. And uh, you want to share some thoughts on the first piece? Yeah, um, as I was thinking about this piece, um, I thought it was, I think it's good to put politics on stage. Like, that's a huge, a huge leap. Um, however, in this one, I felt like maybe because it was a new piece, the politics were getting, uh, for me, were getting in the way of my ability to enjoy the piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they dove right into um, having a white woman and an indigenous man on stage together, uh, trying to find common ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seemed like the intention was to find common ground. But for me, I feel like they kept missing each other somehow, mm-hmm. you know? I, f- I felt a similar way. I felt that the um, they were trying to really show that common ground isn't possible. In that mm-hmm. way, I felt that it worked. But at the same time, I felt even the, the phrasing of the, the words they were saying, it... it it didn't. It didn't speak to me. Essentially, um, there wasn't. There wasn't a lot of movement even that made you feel connected, or um, it didn't incite emotion. It was just sort of like, okay, we're listening to this stuff. It seems kind of flat, um, and that, yeah. Sorry. So there was uh, there was a lot of uh, words as well. There was sort of a mix of, of words and movement in this piece. Yeah, they would go back and forth. A lot of it was um, uh, uh, Nicole or Troy would start out. It, it happened the entire piece, actually. I acknowledge this and then the other one would acknowledge something else. Um, and it seemed I think they were making a nod to, um, you know, the. I don't want to say it's a trend because it's not a trend. It should be happening. Um, but the the common acknowledgement that most performance pieces make now to um, being on Treaty 6 territory or wherever the treaty that you happen to be on is, um, in some ways I think that um, they were pointing out how that acknowledgement is often just thrown away and made rather glibly as like something that I you know has to be done or that you don't think about. Um, so the the continued acknowledgement of other things um, throughout the piece, and then there was one part where they they sat, uh, they essentially laid down together with this rock. There was this rock on stage the entire time, a little rock statue, two rocks, um, one on top of the other, and they they both laid down face to face on the rock and started talking to each other about their grandmothers. 
So Nicole went first, talked about how her grandmother was baking bread and how she remembers her grandmother's bread. Can I just say, don't we all remember our grandma's bread? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, it switches to Troy, speaking of his grandmother, um, making bannock or fry bread. And also then all of the baggage that came with his grandmother's, um, you know, difficulty, challenges in life, going to residential school, how that affected her, how that affected him, you know. Um, so it just, you, the, the, the specialness of the being like, yes, we can connect on bread, but we're still not connecting. Um, I feel that was the point, but at the same time, it, it didn't feel that, that um, revolutionary or anything to me. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Okay. So then the second piece by was also by Nicole Mion, choreographed on another solo performer called. Uh, her name was Linnea Swan, the performer, uh, and it was called Salt. So the performer starts out with a huge gallon bucket of salt. I think it was pickling salt, <laughs> and starts drawing these, um, pouring the salt out into large squares that sort of intersect on the stage. And so she ended up making herself this really interesting grid to dance within and she started out I thought it was quite um, virtuosic the way that she was dancing to begin with between all the little salt squares um, and not moving them at all but yeah what was your take on this piece well I I thought it was cool too how they were not moving and there was this moment where she I think she accidentally kicked some of the salt and it made me really think about like when when's a fail on stage and like when is an actual thing occurring that you can work with mm. because eventually she's going to spread all the salt like you could tell the salt was going to be spread everywhere but it was just that one moment where it accidentally was spread that I just thought was interesting like, yeah yeah it seemed like it happened a little bit early on we're like oh there's a little bit of salt out of the shape what's gonna happen <laughs> yeah. and then of course you know as 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 a performer or anyone who's ever been on a stage before you're sitting there watching stuff get spilled around and spread around on a stage floor and just thinking of the technicians in the back just like Oh God, we're oh, gonna yeah. have to clean that up. <laughs> I even saw the technician clean it up. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. In full light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She did. Well, of course, because intermission was after this piece, they had to have it. It took a little, took a little too long to uh, clean up. Even though the performer did sweep some of it into a pile. Oh yeah. There was a large part of salt yeah. still left. There. That was the other thing. Is like she was sweeping it into a pile, but it wasn't all being swept into a pile. Like it's one of those things where it's so literal that like if it's not actually being swept into the pile, you're like. God, like it's half being swept. It's like theatrically being swept into the pile. Yeah, yeah. You know and you're, I mean? So you're kind of left with this like hanging idea. You're just like, there's still salt on the freaking stage. Exactly. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you get obsessed with it. It's but visually, I just thought that it was interesting. She was doing these great spins where she would fan her feet and the salt would just go flying. So if you kind of like, you know, as a, as a person used to being on the stage or around the stage could just let go of the idea of like, oh my God, there's salt everywhere. It looked very cool. Yeah, it did. And she used the salt in her dancing as well, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah, and there was a oh, such a great image of her. She would at the at the end of the piece, there was a big pile of salt, and she just got as much as she could in her hands, and then let it sort of fall out, like you know, like a one of those egg timers, essentially. Um, but it reminded me of one of the most beautiful dance pieces I've ever seen from the Portland. I think it was the Portland Dance Company, but it was a woman who had flour in an apron, and she was letting flour fall out from her hands, and so. 
um, you know, the symbolism of like flour or salt too is just, mm-hmm. it's like a very feminine, I find, especially flour. But salt is also just something that is, it's used in spirituality. Yeah. It's used in, you know, superstition and all sorts of things. So I thought that salt was an interesting medium to use too. And it yeah. crunched, it had a good sound to it. It did. And it was a very clear image. It was very simple, you know, the whole piece. So it came together well mm-hmm. in yeah. that way. Yeah, it, it, like uh, aesthetically really enjoyed watching that piece. Yeah. So then the third piece, I'll let you start with that one because I know you really liked it. <laughs> yeah, I loved the third piece. Um, it was uh, um, from Regina and Robin Portrois who said it's called This and it was part of a bigger piece. And then, um, but this one we just saw one dancer. So, and she'd worked on it with her husband, Edward, who is... Um, uh, what is it? he's he's a visual artist as well, and you could tell you could tell there was a visual artist involved in this piece for sure because the aesthetics were really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started with uh, a piece of paper sort of uh, diagonally on the entire stage, like this giant white piece of paper, which I love. I love when a stage is white or like the walls are white. There's just something about that that really gets mm-hmm. me, you know. It's so strikingly different than the usual black, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so and then she came out in these fun fur pants. Uh they were like <laughs> giant. I know and she like kind of crawled out and she had like she she looked like an animal at a rave like from the 90s. That's what she reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Like in a magazine or she, something. She she had the same like yeah. weird little ponytails on the top of her head too that were like yeah, it, she kind of did look like sort of like if the rave was happening in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> and I made me think like what are you guys doing in Regina like <laughs> this crazy like dancing and like yeah it was like there's something ritualistic about what they were doing as well and then the music I loved it was avant-garde Russian music which I didn't know at the time but it was just all over the place and so dynamic and percussive and uh it would switch and sometimes she would be like yeah like shaking her leg and downward dog to the sound of um bagpipes yeah the bagpipes (laughs) were in there too it was very very Nordic also wild yeah Yeah. Um, and when she would shake you know anytime she would shake her hair would kind of vibrate and the pants the fur on the pants would just like go crazy it looked electric in a way it's pretty neat Yeah. and then the paper eventually just morphs into this amazing like gigantic origami then you could tell it was really planned like really precise exactly where she was going to move to make this shape and then it would just sort of appear mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. And in the program notes it says that it's about it's it's somehow about the calvi- calving of an iceberg. So uh, you know thinking about what the way that the eventual big paper sculpture ended up looking like I guess it did look like a big chunk of an iceberg that had cleaved off and there was a little animal trapped inside of it. Oh yeah, she also had a backpack too. That she yeah, she had all these like weird. Thi- yeah. Oh, the red ribbon. Okay, yeah. the red ribbon. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we did talk about the red. Well, the red ribbon is. It, it was cool, but for me, it's like a theater trope. It's like I'm dying. The red ribbon comes out. I'm so, bleeding yeah. from my yeah. mouth, yeah. biting this red ribbon. Like it's kind. Of, that's kind of what it seemed like. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds cool. It was, was cool. all I had to add to that. <laughs> It was really cool. It was pretty cool. I like that little creature. Um, and the performer in that one uh, was Christ- uh, Krista Solheim. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I thought I thought she brought a lot to it. You know, I didn't didn't really like phase out. Just kind of like watched what's happening to this weird little creature. Um, it was a lot. Of the the movement was very like crawling. Like it was kind of ob- animalistic. She was almost always on all fours in some shape or another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was really present too for mm-hmm. me. Like beyond what an actor normally would be on stage, you saw how a dancer can really like fill. Mm-hmm. fill a stage yeah. there. 
She was with Presence. the white paper. Yeah. She was on the white paper. <laughs> it was, yes. <laughs> and so, um, okay, well, then the final piece in the Prairie Dance Circuit was uh, Brian Webb's choreography called Portrait. Uh, and with for this, he was working with uh, local dancer Tony Olivares. And throughout the piece, you understand that, you come to understand that it's actually sort of a story about how Brian and Tony know each other. <laughs> so uh, what were some of your thoughts on, on this one? Yeah, I just liked how, I liked his rebellious um, side, how he couldn't take the Brian's class. Oh yeah, first. Tony was just yeah. a little snarky student in one of Brian's yeah. <laughs> dance classes. Yeah. But then the piece kind of opens up and then Tony tells some stories and you realize that there's a whole depth to Tony that you would never know and that it's quite intense uh Mm -hmm. and then that sort of informed the piece I really liked how he talked in between dancing it's kind of like he said sometimes I think you put too many elements at once you want like sound speaking talking like all at once but they he really separated it so that it was like a little speech and then a dance and Mm -hmm. I thought that was nice yeah. yeah, yeah. I do like how the um, the piece started out just really very much as pure dance. Tony dancing to a piece by the Gypsy Kings, very fast foot movement, really, um, really kind of just like dynamic. Tony is a dancer that loves using a lot of space. He's a great extension. He's dancing around the whole stage really quick. Um, and Paul, I think you would really appreciate this. Um, in the middle of the, the first third, I guess. Okay. Uh Brian Webb stands up in the middle of the audience and starts yelling, stop the music, stop, stop, stop the music. Tony kind of like slows down, you know, like throws his hands up in the air. And um, Brian is just kind of like, Tony, Tony, is this what we discussed? And Tony just kind of like, yeah, doesn't really have a response. And And then Brian says... How much of this is improv and how much is choreography? <laughs> like something to that effect. And <laughs> Tony very just sort of like nonchalantly, he's like, ah, I don't know, maybe like 50-50. <laughs> Great. Amazing. So sort of like that's when you get that sense of like the the like mentor or student dynamic and sort of when you get that it's sort of this piece about them rather than just uh, a piece about movement or yeah, something like that. Yeah, and it's I think it's it's kind it was kind of about Tony discovering his way and how maybe Brian sort of like egged that on in him um, because later in the dance you find out that that's an actual conversation that the two of them had in while Tony was in Brian was in Brian Webb's classes. Yeah, and you you said something interesting afterwards that this is a form that you've seen in Brian Webb's dance. Like I don't know his style well enough to know mm. but you said that there is like some really recognizable like like trends tr- yeah <laughs> trends in the movement you know like this is the part where you do this and then this is the part where you do this and then I, I don't know oh yeah so um total total Brian Webb's signature the piece ends rolling slowly on the floor nice yeah <laughs> Paul knows this one um but I think um I mean um, I saw my first Brian Webb piece about 20 years ago when I was in high school um, and he was in a red trench coat and underwear, I think, and ended it in underwear, pretty sure rolling on the floor. Um, but it, over the past few years, um, I'd say in the last maybe three or four years, what we've seen, especially with the podcast, it, actually maybe even just in the last two or three years, is that the work that we're seeing Brian Webb create is very nostalgic and very vocally narrative. Like he is actually telling stories about his life. And that I find Brian Brian will acknowledge himself that he loves to talk. Uh, and he did on stage actually even at this show. Um, but I think that 
hearing Brian talk about his life and his process um, in this in the setting of a show where you're supposed to kind of like have a button where it ends um, that it does it does really provide a lot of interesting insight into how his whole style and um, his philosophy about it is it was created forever 39 forever forever 39 yeah yeah for sure um well so yeah do you have anything else to add laura oh well i just wonder if he's distilled his process of doing personal work in his dance to a place now where he can do that with another dancer because he had tony kind of opening up the same way he did Mm -hmm. in his previous work but it was almost i'm interested if, if it is kind of formulaic you know if he is an artist that's sort of returning to the same motif over and over again in his mm-hmm. work, and if he's now able to sort of, in a formulaic kind of way, make his dancers open up personally so that yeah. their story then kind of, it yeah. had this kind of glow, like he'd tell a story and then the afterglow, in the afterglow of the story he would dance yeah. to a piece of music in it. It was neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the end, like the, the last half of the piece was the same song twice. It was called The First Time I Ever Saw Your Face. The first version was by George Michael, and the second version was by Johnny Cash. And just remember how different it was, the same song and these two different vocalists and the dancing. Like, the end seemed very somber, really not lonely, but kind of sad. Um, yeah. or, or just like a melancholy nostalgia. And, and that whereas the George Michael one seemed, um, it was more romantic. There was more youth in it. You know, so you kind of saw that progression of him kind of growing with the piece, too. That's sort of an interesting side on just the idea of, especially with dance and, and contemporary dance, where sometimes there isn't that uh, overt or easily sort of graspable meaning. But when you inject your own personal stories into it in that very verbatim way, it colors the dance in the way that the, the two songs probably did, where it can give it this sort of tone or that sort of tone, but it sort of gives it a context that uh, often isn't presented in in dance and sort of is left for the audience to decide or decipher or what whatever it may be but to sort of uh, overtly give that seems like an interesting uh uh, way of working in in that particular medium of art. Yeah, it's it's really as an audience member, it's just a very obvious like here I'm tugging your heartstrings. Here, feel empathy for me. I am a real person. This is my real story. Yeah. So you know, and it worked for me. Like I was emotionally connected to the dance yeah. a lot, and to, to and to the performer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Tony was a great mover in this piece. He was just it, you know as a soloist, it's always fascinating to watch someone with you know like a, a great physicality he's got he loves like long arms long legs like he's just and and yeah moves around a lot more i think uses a lot more of the stage very quickly um than 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 some soloists that you know you kind of a lot of solos work tends to be really internal and tony's not a dancer like that at all i don't think um you can really see it all over his body when he's going and you can see sort of his story of his dance style and how it's it's evolved for and how it is connected to his where he's from culturally mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how that blended with where he is now in Canada what has kind of changed and morphed yeah he was talking about his childhood in Nicaragua and some of the stories were, that he shared they were intimate and scary um, and but and you felt fortunate to hear them um, and then see the sort of a movement response afterwards. It was really great. All right. Well, um, I think we've exhausted the Prairie Dance Circuit. So that's great. Thank you so much for coming in, Laura, and for seeing the show with me. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Come again. Bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>
All right, so I did not see the Prairie Dance Circuit, but I did see the next show uh, with you. Yes, uh, which was Tango Fire by Al- presented by Alberta Ballet, who were who were hosting a company. Yes, they were hosting the uh, incidentally called Tango Fire Company of Buenos Aires. There you go. Who who sort of you know, uh, Fonda? Tell me about the tango as a dance form. What do we What do we know? All right, so. This is this was a bit of a different piece, not only for Alberta Ballet, but also for us, because we don't usually get to see a lot of um, social dance that's put in a performance situation. Uh, and when you say social dance, you mean like something someone could learn in a class, that sort of thing? Or in a nightclub, or, sure. you know, it's, you know, it usually starts out as like groups of people not professionally trained who are just trying to have a good time with some good music. Um, now, the tango is, um, I did not know very much about the tango before this performance. Ah. I will be completely honest. I was under the mistaken assumption that it was a lot like flamenco, which it is not. No, although I thought it was interesting that, uh, given that it's interesting that Alberta Ballet is, is hosting this and putting it on, they had a little thing about what to watch for in their program, which was an interesting sort of nod to to their audience who may or may not know much about tango. It was like, look for look for these things. Look for um, the embrace. The embrace. Yeah. Look for the balance. Look for how the the heels are on the dance floor. Things like that, mm-hmm. which was sort of a just an interesting um, exercise in sort of. Preparing your audience for something they they may not know much about. Yeah, and I mean, I I love learning. I think of myself as a perpetual student, so I really appreciate when it, someone says, "Okay, you know what? Watch for the way that their chests are so close together, so that they can keep their legs for their part, because their legs were moving like mad in this show." Um, and the lunges, the lunges were also just a very it's a very characteristic part of the tango. So yes, huge extensions, and they even made a, a bit of a joke at the very beginning in the first piece uh, as to, like, how far their legs were kicking out behind them. Oh, yeah. Dude got kicked in the junk um, for comedy's sake. from behind. Yeah. <laughs> in an incredible extension. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, the then the comedic. They, they started out in sort of like a bit of a kind of parlor type scene. Yeah, it was sort of like the, the skeletal story or framing of this this whole show, or at least the first half of it, was it was like it's dance night at this club. The band is on stage. There's a live band mm-hmm. uh, for the whole show. And then it's sort of like everyone's showing up to dance and, and finding their partners and pairing off and doing the, these uh, these incredibly uh, complicated from the waist down moves, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't to say they aren't complicated uh, upstairs as well, but it's sort of the legs that are doing the bulk of the movement and the, mm-hmm. the flippy sort of turns and uh, the windmilling yeah. as it appeared, the it, windmilling from the waist down. Yeah, it was really it was really about like from the knee down largely, mm-hmm. um, although I, the women's legs were really strong, of course. They're like doing, you know, full splits, leg on the shoulder of their partner. Um, you know, I, wh- I was most impressed, I think, watching the duets. There were there were four couples in the piece or five, I think, actually. Yeah. And one thing you pointed out that I didn't uh, notice uh, off the top is that every couple sort of remains the same in, mm-hmm. in tango, or at least in this company. It's like everyone's got their dance partner. And it doesn't mean there are some aren't some dances where they where they switch it up. But especially in the second half, which we'll get to in a bit. 
uh, it was like everyone and their partner have their sort of like set partnership and, and do their thing. Yeah, even their bios in the program are done together. So it's kind of what it makes me think of first is like, you know, figure skating, like ice dance or something like you have your partner and that's mm-hmm. how you that's how your career goes. And a lot of them are um, very storied and awarded in international ballroom circles for mm-hmm. their talent with the tango. So um, I think as a as a part of as a part of dance culture it's a type of company that we haven't really had a lot of experience with right so so what stood out fonda what were things we we noticed what were things we uh we found most particular about tango fire i really enjoyed the pieces that were just straight up duets where you could really see the intricate footwork that was happening I always say that I like to watch the feet um, just because that's it's I I feel that that's one of the keynotes for me as a dancer where I just like that's skill. Not Mm -hmm. a lot of people watch the feet. They watch the pretty hands and faces and, you know, um, but yeah, the the feet in this were actually definitely the the feature and the doing seeing it in the duets as opposed to the parts where they were all in groups um, or where the five couples were dancing together. It was much easier to see the intricacy and the skill and the speed with which they're they were really moving at. So what did you notice when you did watch the feet in in this case versus versus other cases? How does watching the feet in tango differ? So these ones, um, it almost seems a little bit like sparring between the two dancers. Their mm. legs would, they would kick in between and outside each other's legs. Uh, the the stepping in tango is something really different that I I honestly didn't know anything about. But there's, normally in social dance, you'll sort of mirror each other. Okay. But in tango, they seem to actually be almost always walking around each other. Mm-hmm. Um, like kind of, um, and and there's, and it's very, very gendered. That was one of the things that you noticed. It was this, you know, the uh, the female partner is, is almost constantly just cued by um, the male partner. Right. There's mm-hmm. the, so the, there's the masculine element and the feminine element of tango. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was, um, in those duets, it was really enjoyable to watch, particularly in the first half and the first couple in the second half. Um, they all had their own sort of different flavor and style, things they were good at. Um, I really enjoyed some of the lifts because they're a very different kind of lift. Um, they're all sort of lifts by momentum. Okay. So... And I guess in that way, it's also similar to like pairs figure skating or ice dance where, you know, like the motion ends up becoming someone flipping around their partner. Um, Whereas uh, the rest of the dance is super staccato and they actually kind of like pause and shift very quickly. So um, seeing those huge sort of sweeping momentous lifts was very different than a lot of the kind of like um, choppy footwork that was happening. Mm, Great. And and then uh, yeah, and in the second half, uh, the first half sort of had that that loose narrative. We saw some groups, we saw we saw some couples, but the second half it was all about the couples, and everyone got their like cool special move and and mm-hmm. their their solo that was sort of like this is the bit we do yeah. or or do in this show. Everyone, got, yeah, every every couple got sort of like a feature bit, and then it started to get kind of Vegasy. What uh, do you mean when you say <laughs> kind of Vegasy, Fonda? I mean, then they got changed into, you know, some sequin bodysuit with boy short and pulled out a big uh, a big red curtain that they were 
you know, manipulating from the sides of the stage. And it just it just started to look a little bit more like, oh, I'm we're watching just sort of like a spectacle show now. It didn't seem as much about the dance as it was just kind of like, let's try and fill this huge stage with um, costumes and sequins. And, and uh, yeah, I I wasn't quite sure how to feel about that (laughs) sure now do you think that's the sort of thing when we you know this is a a company that has toured the world is that the sort of thing a company like this almost needs today to sort of make that international splash is not just like good good footwork literally and and good tango but to really get around to have that sense of of spectacle and and to be able to dazzle an audience sort of above and beyond just movement because it certainly worked the audience was certainly hooting and hollering into it yeah um, and I I think that's a really good question because the only other sort of, you know, like major internationally successful dance touring thing of, a, you know, sort of like a a very culturally culturally isolated uh, dance that I can think of is Riverdance. Mm, um, right. And, of course, Riverdance was very spectacly and sequiny and that kind of thing. They did have live musicians. Um, they had a lot more dancers, of course. It was a much bigger production. But yes, maybe it is something that they do need. And maybe this kind of production is something that Alberta Ballet also needs to sell a whole bunch of tickets um, to an audience that probably maybe wouldn't go to a traditional, you know, Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella type ballet. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, and if you're going to approach tango, it's like, oh, this is the tango. You're going to see tango, but you're also going to see a huge spectacle side of it as well. Mm-hmm. Like some of the, when every sort of couple had its cool move, it was like some of those moves were stunning. There was one where, you know, based sort of on momentum, uh, someone was like flipped upside down and then held upside down. Mm-hmm. And sort of like there was a pause there in this sort of incredible moment of like control and precision. There was a lot of like incredible pulling people through and then sliding sliding far oh, yeah, on your leg on and, floor, you know, grabbing yeah. at just the right moment and, and things like that. So there were these sort of incredible huge moments. But but mm-hmm. I totally agree. It, it suddenly... The tone became very uh, spectacly, mm-hmm. very just kind of like this is a show that you you could go see in in Las Vegas or maybe New York or wherever you like. Um, but yeah, it did seem it did seem just super uh, playing to the showmanship of it and not as focused on the dance. And as a dance geek, I was just kind of like, can we just see some more of the fast footwork? That would be great. But you know, I'm not every audience member, so. Totally. It's also maybe interesting to acknowledge the show we saw. Uh, someone was absent from the band. There was a yeah. uh, so it's this three piece band on stage where it's like a, a big double bass and uh, like a squeeze box. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, for and a pianist and uh, and a violin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was apparently also a, a vocalist yeah. who, who, due to illness, couldn't couldn't do the show that that we saw in Edmonton, uh, which is strange because I feel like. And maybe the band sort of has their contingency, this is a bit more focused uh, mm-hmm. version of, of the soundtrack, but it wasn't that I couldn't necessarily feel where their absence was, which is, I guess, either a testament to the band or the show itself. But there, yeah, I I didn't notice. It was like, oh, and this is clearly where there would be like the vocal the vocal, the vocal line. break, right? Yeah, like they they cover whatever it was. the The piece flowed together really well. Um, I I would have loved to see uh, what the vocalist would have added. Uh, also, the musicians themselves uh, were great. They there was some there was a whole extended bit in the second half where um, the the four musicians were um, playing and they all kind of each had a, like a little bit of a solo feature mm-hmm. and it was fantastic. 
Yeah, and they would also cover costume changes uh, yeah. with sort of just vamping on stage. But they were mm-hmm. they were obviously there's a reason they get to tour with the the international tango. They're all very very good at what they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite parts was actually at the very end, even after the after the curtain call, they did a little bit of a button where it was kind of an encore, and um, one of the lead female uh, dancers dragged out. Um, his name was Hugo Satore. He was the guy playing the little squeeze box, which is called a Bandoneon. Um, it's cool. kind of like a tiny accordion or, yeah. or like a half size accordion. Um, but she pulled him down from his musician's spot and did a little bit of dancing with him. And what was really neat was that she started doing some very slow, very sort of playful footwork that you didn't see at all anywhere else in the dance. <laughs> it was I funny. It was great. Yeah, after the show where the the footwork was so fast and and flying, it was sort of like the it's like and this is this is the starting steps of that. Like yeah. maybe maybe he's learning on yeah. this tour this and they're just giving musician. him the, the We're going to be gentle with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was very playful and fun and sort of a, a nod to some of the complexity they'd done earlier uh yeah, uh which was which was cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that was that was essentially Tango Fire. Um, where the next thing we're going to see with Alberta Ballet is Dangerous Liaisons in the in November. Mm-hmm. And Fonda, mm-hmm. you wanted to talk about one more thing today. Yeah, last night I went to the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra at the okay. Winter Center, and I have not, in all honesty, been to the symphony probably since I was in elementary school on a field trip. Okay. Um, and it was. It was it was a great evening. It was um, part of their uh, Saturday Masters series, and the soloists were harp and cello. Um, the cello soloist, his name is Stefan Tetrault, little wonderkind. He's twenty four years old. He was playing a six million dollar Stradivarius cello that was apparently a really really big deal when it was gifted to him. Um, but his the his solo was incredible. Um, and, you know, cello is, is just a fantastic instrument. I've always really enjoyed uh, string music. And it was it was great to watch also because I got what I thought were like the super cheap, awful seats. I was sitting right in front, way, way to the right. Um, I could though I could see a direct line, though, to um, the soloists and to the principal violinist, who was also fantastic. Um, just watching how um, the body language in the symphony uh, that I never, I took for granted before that there wasn't really much. Um, but seeing the body language between even the conductor and the principal violinist was just incredible. So so what did you see? What, what stood out about that? So there are certain, um, I want to, I, I know nothing about what conductor's body language means, but there is, a system to it. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, they're they're working with breaths and they're trying to make sure that everyone is all, um, that everyone is performing in the way that they're supposed to. Right. They're <laughs> not just the timekeeper. They're also sort of gesturing and giving uh, emphasis and tone and sort of focusing these sort of elements. Yeah. And I didn't really realize how much animation there was to what a conductor is doing, particularly um, in the face and even, you know, not just with the baton hand, but the other hand. The, the conductor the guest conductor that was there um, this time, his name was um, Jose Luis Gomez. Um, and he was just, you know, most of the audience could only see him by the back. But because I was in this cheap seat so far to the side, I could actually see his face and mm. pr- up one nostril. And it right. was and 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 there was flaring like there was aggression and sweetness and, you know, a lot of communication in his face with 
um, individuals in his orchestra. And I, I want now I want to learn more about it. I want to go to the symphony again. I thought it was fantastic. There was a thing that happened a few years ago at Culture Days uh, that I went to with uh, my friend Sydney. And uh, it was sort of you got to sit in on the ESO's rehearsal. So before their show, uh, you got to watch them rehearsing with Bill Eddins at the time, who was the mm-hmm. uh, conductor. Uh, and it was it was fascinating. I mean, amazing watching everyone in the symphony show up in like, you know, their casual clothes and their yeah. Starbucks coffees and all these <laughs> things. But just though he would they would play a segment and you'd be like, oh, that's really good. And then he would stop it and be like, you know, this section, do this. This section, couldn't hear you. Up it. This section, you know, do this. And then they would play it again. And it would be noticeable, the change. So it's mm-hmm. such a... It is being it's so such command of so many different instruments and sounds at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating and also a world I know almost nothing about except for that one instance. Yeah, and it's it is very much like directing a directing a play. You know, you're they're ta- they are taking direction even though there's notes on a page. They can be played in in a number of different ways. Of right. Course, right, it's like if a director was directing a play live from the audience while you were watching without using their words but mm-hmm. gesture and gesture and, and their own body language. Yeah, you know? of course there's a script, but there's also, you know, everything that the live people that are there bring to it. So, yeah. Um, it's kind of a big year for um, the ESO because Bill Eddins, as you mentioned, um, has has left or, or, or retired, and they have a new young conductor. His name is Alex Pryor, who apparently hates being reminded that he is so young, but he is, um, he is 25 years old and a little um, firecracker. He's on the cover of Avenue, uh, this month and it's um, also the 20th anniversary of the Winspear Center itself so they're doing a lot of celebration type stuff this year um, yeah but I would encourage anyone if you haven't seen the symphony before go get a cheap seat it's $24 and you'll have a pretty good time cool yeah what's uh, what's coming up Fonda Oh my gosh, Paul! We are in the mid, like the the big part of the season now. Yeah. Um, next up, um, immediately coming this week is Toy Guns with Fortuitous Endings, um, which is a show that I know they created a couple of years ago. But I think that you know some things have happened, and it could be a different show that's happening at the Arts Barns October fifth and seventh. Mm-hmm. I think it was sort of they toured around some fringes to to success, mm-hmm. and uh, so they're bringing it back. Yeah, Toy Guns Dance Company is always kind of fun. Toy yeah. Guns Dance. Theater, I think, maybe is actually what they're called. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Toy guns. <laughs> uh, what are you going to see next? What am I going to see next? Uh, oh, Mile Zero Dance is doing Remix, which I'm not sure about. So let's take a pause. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, I have like a million notes around here somewhere. Great. We, we good to jump back in? Oh, yeah, whenever. Great. So Mile Zero Dance's remix is uh, features two local choreographers having short works remixed by visiting choreographers from Montreal and St. John's, as well as local choreographer Amber Brotsik, who will travel to those cities to rework dances there. So sort of like, much like the Prairie Dance Circuit, a sort of dancers exchange, it seems, where choreographers will visit each other's works and uh, and give them a certain sense of, I guess, themselves which is happening October 14th and 15th uh, of this month, which is indeed October. Yeah, it is October today, isn't it? 
Sweet, it is October. Sweet Lord, Paul. <laughs> um, okay, so next up then, I wanted to give a plug for Fluid Fest, not only because Laura uh, talked about it. That's happening in Calgary, October 18th to 28th. Um, but, you know, we can always cover um, Alberta dance. Also because Prairie Dance Circuit, Good Women Dance Company from Edmonton are going to be appearing at Fluid Fest. Um, and there's a company called Shea Kubler's Radical System Art Dance um, and a piece called Telemetry. That's going to be at Fluid in Calgary, but it is also coming to Edmonton on October 25th. Actually, it's coming to Sherwood Park at Festival Place, but we're going to try and see that too. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Got to do it all. Go get Laura. <laughs> and then City Ballet, what's the show? City Ballet's Illuminate. Right, right. Okay, cool. And then coming up is City Ballet's Illuminate from October 27th to 29th, which is, uh, I believe, their first work of the season of three. Yes. And I am going to also give a super shameless plug to my something that is happening at LitFest, which is my uh, usual day job. Full disclosure, Fonda Runs is the executive director <laughs> of LitFest. Yes. Um, we have a really interesting book by an author called Britt Ray. Um, it's, her, it's her first book. She's a science writer. She's written a book called Rise of the Necrofauna, which is about the ethics of de-extinction. And um, we have commissioned je dancer Jen. Jen Mesh and Jen Mesh Dance Conspiracy to come in and give a movement response to that because uh, Jen Mesh is super into dinosaurs and stuff. We thought it would be kind of cool. So that's happening on October 17th at LitFest. And last but not least, uh, coming up uh, October 19th, we have Dirt Buffet Cabaret, which is a sort of beloved uh, variety show that's sprung up in the past few years. Um, previously run by uh, Ben Gorodetsky, who has moved to New York. Uh, but now has been uh, Miles Zero Dance has handed it off to a bunch of different curators. Rather than giving the whole thing to one, every Dirt Buffet this season will be curated by a different uh, artist from a different discipline to sort of in the spirit of Dirt Buffet, which is all about uh, weird and eclectic and sort of bringing the unusual pieces of art and giving them 10 minutes to do whatever they want. Cool. All yeah. right. Well, I think that's that's a lot. That's a lot to take in. Some until... would say too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's you know we're we're in it now. It is October. The season is the season is nigh. Mm -hmm. So well, um, off we go. Thanks for listening, everyone. Go see some stuff. Bye. I don't get it. It's produced by Paul Blinov, Fonda Mithrash, and Andrew Paul. It was recorded at the Edmonton Community Foundation in beautiful Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Our website is idontgetityeg.com. Our Twitter is at idontgetityeg. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes and support us through Patreon. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli. Check out more of Ghibli's music at ghibli.bandcamp.com. Sit here thinking, sit here thinking, I love you.